0: Family relationships are characteristically uneven affairs. It's it's common really to hear something like, uh, he's very close to his brother, but it's a very different story with his sister. Or she doesn't get along very well with grandma, but her and grandpa are real tight. It's not unusual to see two siblings conceived in the same womb, born by the same woman, raised by the same parents growing up in the same environment and one of those children gets along better with dad and the other gets along better with mom. Sometimes these variations in family relationship make sense and at other times there is a great deal of mystery in it all. And how very mysterious then it often is to witness this phenomenon in the family of God. Why is it that some believers seem to so to be so much closer to their heavenly father than our others? Two spiritual siblings born again by the same spirit nurtured on the same word, but one enjoys a vibrant relationship with the father and the other frankly struggles. Sometimes this difference is easily explained by a believer's weakness with a besetting sin of some sort. Flirting with idols certainly saps our love for God, and we all understand that. But there are other times when the explanation is not so clear and obvious. We know that as God's children, we have a perfect Father who loves us with an infinite love. The problem does not lie with Him. We know that as His creatures, that as His creatures, it is our moral responsibility. And it is our privilege to love Him with all of our heart and soul and mind and strength. Anything less is self-destructive and brings disrepute to God. Yet the fact remains, we all point to others who simply love God more than we do. Why is that? There's undoubtedly many answers to that question, but we find a crucial piece to the puzzle at the end of Luke chapter 7. Do you want to know God? Do you want to know why you do not love God more fervently? Do you want to love Him with a deeper devotion? There is a singular beam of light in this crucial passage of Scripture, a vital root of true devotion to Him. We find in verse 36 of Luke chapter 7 the setting to this narrative which had been read to us earlier. One of the Pharisees invited Jesus to have dinner with him, so he went to the Pharisee's house and he reclined at the table. In this narrative before us, we find Jesus at the home of a Jewish leader of the strict Pharisee sect. We will learn later that his name is Simon. We do not know the occasion of this meal. Many have suggested that most likely it would have come on a Sabbath day after the synagogue meeting. There would have been a customary meal for biblical teachers in Israel at that time, and this was probably just such a formal meal. In any event, Simon invites Jesus to visit his home for this formal meal, and Jesus accepts the invitation. Now there's a huge bridge, to a span to bridge between us and this day. And let me do that for a little bit here. First of all, this is a cultural meal that misses us largely. But Simon was likely a man as a Pharisee of some means, in which case the meal would have been held in the inner courtyard of his home or in a large room of his home. The invited guests would come into the room, into the courtyard, around the table and they would first take off their sandals. And then they would lie down on their side, propping themselves up on their left elbow on a cushion, and would eat the meal with their right hand, their feet stretched out behind them. Now wouldn't it be fun to sit in the corner of that room or around the edges of that table and listen to Jesus talk? Wouldn't it be interesting to gather there and to listen to these great theologians as they conversed over a meal? Well, in Jewish culture, they catered to that very interest. And these meals were public events. You could walk in and walk out as you chose, and you could listen to the great teachers speaking around this meal. Many would stand around the edges, and they'd come and they'd go. Word would get around, and it would serve as a sort of informal invitation to everyone to come and to listen in on the conversation at this formal dinner. Now this is something of what is going on here in this setting. These guests coming and going and listening in. Now the text does not say explicitly, but it implies that Simon's interest here is to in some way find Jesus to be less than Messiah. We go back to chapter 6 and verse 7 and we might see something there of the spirit with which Simon brings Jesus to this dinner. Chapter 6 and verse 7, the Pharisees and the teachers of the law were looking for a reason to accuse Jesus. And it may well be that as one of those Pharisees, that is exactly why Simon invites Jesus to this meal, to accuse him, to find something wrong in him. So he invites Jesus to his home. Jesus receives the invitation, but it is a rather cool invitation and a cool reception, which will become clear below. With this setting in mind, then, a rather strange thing happens at this meal. It is not as strange as it might strike us without understanding the cultural background, but it is nonetheless somewhat strange. Verse 37, we find here that a woman anoints Jesus' feet. When a woman who had lived a sinful life in that town learned that Jesus was eating at the Pharisee's house, she brought an alabaster jar of perfume, and as she stood behind him at his feet weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears. Then she wiped them with her hair, kissed them, and poured perfume on them. Let's consider this event for a few moments. First of all, the identity of this woman is unknown. She's not Mary Magdalene. She's not, to our knowledge, any woman who is named in Scripture. And the fact that she is not named, coupled with the description that she was a woman who had lived a sinful life in the city, almost certainly identifies her as a prostitute. She lived in a culture which had a bandwagon approach to sexuality for women, and this woman fell off the wagon. She was morally muddied, never to be brought back onto the wagon of respectability. More importantly, somewhere along the line, this very woman had come into contact with Jesus Christ. And that is significant because somewhere along the line, she had set aside the will of God and entered into a shameful lifestyle. But on that muddy path, she encountered the teachings of Jesus and something happened in her soul. Perhaps she had just heard him speak at the synagogue that morning, ran home to get her alabaster ointment, Great of great expense, perhaps even one with illegitimate wages. Whatever the circumstances, somehow she had become a follower of Jesus Christ. And she brings to this meal this alabaster jar. It is a soft stone that would have been shaved and carved into a, a kind of a glassy rock exterior, and on the inside cavity was poured this very expensive ointment and preserved there. A long neck on this jar would be broken. And then the ointment poured generally on the head, very pungent oil that would have smelled for some time, very beautiful smell. And we see this here in her devotion. We see her identity is unknown, but her devotion is very known and well known in public. Verse 38, there she is behind the reclining Jesus, standing at His feet. And as she stands there, the tears are so profuse that they rain down upon His feet. Some spiritual transformation has taken place in her heart. Imagine these tears and imagine the intensity of her devotion to Christ to come and stand there weeping. There's a beautiful phrase in the commentary by R. Kent Hughes where he says that this woman was given a virgin heart. A virgin heart as she stands there in all of her sin. She stands over Jesus' feet. The tears of joyful contrition and humility burst from her eyes, so profuse that they wet Jesus' feet. Now, we don't know if she planned to do this or not. Uh, One leading commentator in the book of Luke suggests that she is horrified to suddenly discover that her tears are pouring down on Jesus' feet and she's not prepared, she has not come to wash his feet any other way than perhaps this way. But maybe she is surprised by this, but she brings no towel with her. And so she does the only thing that she can do or the thing that she planned to do, we don't know which. But it could be possible that she's surprised by what has happened and she bows down instinctively at Jesus' feet and takes her hair and begins to dry his feet. Now that seems very unusual to us, but it's much more unusual than than meets the eye to the American reader. For a woman to unbind her hair in public was a great disgrace. It was said by the rabbis of this time that a woman should unbind her hair only in front of her husband. It was, to unbind the hair in public was equivalent in that culture to burying a woman's chest publicly. They were made equivalent. In fact, the rabbi said if a woman does this, if she lets down her hair in public, the man is free to divorce her. I don't know if she came to the meal with her hair unbound, which would certainly indicate what her lifestyle was, but at any rate, it was. This, of course, is not a sensual act on her part, but is the fact, it indicates the fact that she is not seeing herself at all. She sees Jesus and she weeps. And she bows down and kisses His feet and anoints His feet. Again, in our culture, that I, I wouldn't find that particularly flattering if someone did that to me. We're sitting at a church meal and somebody starts untying my shoes and kissing my feet. I'm going to be pushing the chair away quite quickly. If nothing else, it just tickles too much to even let that happen. I, it, it just is unimaginable to us that anyone would do such a thing. We need to think two things here. First of all, this was very rare, but it was rare, not unprecedented. To kiss someone's feet, particularly a rabbi's feet, was something that was done in that culture. It was a way of showing deep humility and reverence for the teacher. So here she is, giving to Jesus the highest level of honor that could be afforded in that culture in that time. She does not let down her hair to be indecent, but out of self-effacing, self-forgetful devotion, she weeps and ministers to the feet of her Savior. Well, As we might expect, this whole scene is very troubling to a proper Pharisee And as pertains to Jesus, Simon has drawn all the conclusions he needs to draw at this point. We see his reaction in verse 39. When the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, if this man were a prophet, he would know who is touching him and what kind of woman she is, that she is a sinner. The implied point here is if Jesus were a prophet, he would have discerned who this woman was and he would have pushed her away. He would have never accepted this devotion on her part. Simon then reaches the conclusion I pro- he probably hoped to reach from the very beginning, and that is that Jesus is clearly not a man of God. He is clearly not a prophet. Ironically, as Bach notes, this Jesus, who supposedly cannot read the woman's heart, is now about to unveil the heart of Simon. And he challenges him, beginning here at verse 40. Jesus answered him, Simon, I have something to tell you. Tell me, teacher, he said, Fairly reserved comment. Two men owed money to a certain moneylender. One owed him 500 denarii and the other 50. Neither of them had the money to pay him back, so he canceled the debts of both. Now which of them will love him more? A denarius, by the way, is about a day's wage for a day labor. And this is the day without credit cards. This is a time when most people had to work 12 to 16 hour days just to feed themselves, just to survive. The debts of both men are greater than they can possibly pay. But about 50 days wages or 500 days wages, either one is not going to pay their money lender back, but the man forgives them the debt. And now Jesus questioned in verse 42, which of them will love him more? Well, Simon answers in verse 43, I suppose the one who had the bigger debt canceled. You have judged correctly, Jesus said. And now Jesus turns at verse 44 to directly challenge Simon. Then he turned toward the woman and said to Simon. That is, he directs his remarks to Jesus, but he directs his eyes to the woman. So he's looking at her here, and she has to look like something of a mess at this point. Her hair is probably matted, her eyes swollen with these tears. And he looks at this woman and he says, Do you see this woman? I came into your house, you did not give me any water for my feet, but she wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. Water for the feet at such a meal was not essential. It was not necessarily custom but it was certainly courtesy and certainly for a great rabbi. Simon didn't do that. Verse 45, You did not give me a kiss, but this woman from the time I entered has not stopped kissing my feet. Probably hyperbole, exaggeration to make the point. She's kissed my feet repeatedly. You offered me no kiss. Now that was custom. It was really rude for Simon not to greet Jesus when he came to his home with a kiss on the cheek. That was their handshake. You didn't even give me the common courtesy of a handshake, essentially, is what Jesus says. Verse 46, You did not put oil on my head, but she has poured perfume on my feet. Putting a dab of oil, a ceremonial touch of oil on the head, of olive oil, was a means of customary greeting and honorary. It was not something that would have been expected necessarily, but it certainly would have been right. And now Jesus drives at Simon's heart by connecting the parable and Simon's cool hospitality in verse 47. Here is the cutting point. Therefore, I tell you, her many sins have been forgiven, for she loved much. But he who has been forgiven little loves little. There's a troubling conclusion here Simon, I do know this woman better than you possibly could. I know that her actions demonstrate a repentant heart. She is showing signs of having been forgiven by God, for she loved much. And I think that's the way we should understand that phrase. Her loving devotion to me is evidence that she has been forgiven. The point is not that her love for Jesus earned her forgiveness by God. That will be made clear below. I think the TEV gets it right. The great love she has shown proves that her many sins have been forgiven. This great love that she's demonstrated show that she's a forgiven individual. Now Jesus has apparently never met or spoken to this woman before. But she has apparently been transformed by the teaching of God's truth and He turns now and confirms her in her standing before God. Verse 48, Then Jesus said to her, Your sins are forgiven. Here's a declaration of forgiveness. Jesus is not saying again, because of what you just did, I now forgive your sins. In verse 47, did you notice there Jesus spoke of her as already being forgiven? This woman, he says to Simon, loved much because her sins have been forgiven. Now he turns to her and says your sins are forgiven. It's not that just now, at this moment, I now forgive you on the basis of your great devotion. He's acknowledging that she is a forgiven person and confirming her in her forgiveness. Her act of devotion indicates a transformed heart. He gives her the assurance, however, that her alienation from God is over. Like all of us, she rests forgiven. She rests her forgiveness, rather, on the Word of God. In the end, that's what we must have. Not simply a subjective experience, but an external word of authority from God himself that we have been forgiven. And that's what Jesus gives her here. You are forgiven. Trust my word. We see the reaction to this declaration, verse 49, and I think probably in part not putting all the nuances together here theologically. These who are listening to Jesus say, who is this, verse 49, who even forgives sins? They begin to talk among themselves, who is this man that thinks he can forgive sins? It's a good question. It was raised in chapter 5, and the theme of rejection continues to build in the book of Luke. Then Jesus ends his relationship, or rather his meeting here with the woman through benediction. Verse 50, Jesus said to the woman, your faith has saved you, go in peace. Who has saved her? Who has saved her? God has saved her. What has saved her? It does not say, your love for me has saved you. Your anointing of my feet has saved you. It says, what has saved her? Your faith has saved you. Her confidence in the teaching and the person of Jesus Christ was her salvation. And it was evidenced by her act of deep devotion. Now I'd like us for a moment in our mind's eye to contrast these two people. There they are. There she stands, stripped of all dignity, with tear-streaked feet and swollen eyes, with matted hair hanging scandalously over her shoulders. There she stands, in utter sight, but her humiliated face cannot hide the blush of hope and peace that wells up from within her soul when she hears those words from the Master Teacher. Your sins are forgiven. Your faith has saved you. Go in peace. There the prostitute stands with a virgin heart. There she stands, full of joy and forgiven sin. And there reclining on the ground is Simon the Pharisee. There he lies with a hint of a scowl on his face, his dark eyes beclouded by a spirit of self-commendation and self-reliance. She stands there humble and joyful. He reclines there proud and prudish. One soul forever stuck on itself, the other forever in love with Jesus. One a soul forever free, and the other on a crass course with hell. What does it say to us? Do you want to love God more fervently? What is the root of deeper devotion and love to Him? I think we see that taproot in the stark contrast between this woman and this Pharisee. Let me say it this way, pride poisons the root of devotion. Humility feeds it. Your love for God is directly related to your sense of how hopelessly depraved you are without Christ and how glorious is the experience of forgiven sin People who love Jesus with devoted passion are people who have come to see themselves as hopeless sinners in desperate need of divine forgiveness. A forgiveness so profound it required the slaughter of Jesus Christ. And may I suggest that such a sense is severely lacking in American churches. Our culture is bent against it at every turn. And I may well be speaking to you this morning. Honestly, you really don't see yourself as a hopeless sinner. You would admit that there's some things that you have done that's wrong, but you really would also have to admit that you know you're going to make it on your own. You don't see yourself as a hopeless sinner, but it's important that you understand God does. And His Word makes that very clear in passages such as Romans chapter 3 and verse 10, which says there's no one who seeks God. We are lost in our sin and hopeless. And if that is you, then your problem is pride and it is self-dependence. Just like Simon. You need to see Jesus dying on the cross and to know in your heart that He had to do that. For you. There was no other way. For those of us who have come to saving faith in Christ, who like this woman have come to see Him as the answer to our sin, one of the crucial and stabilizing roots of deep love for Christ is a sense of the depth and the seriousness of the sin from which we have been delivered. This woman loved much because she sensed that she had been forgiven much. The root of love for God is a proper self-humiliation. The theologian Augustine observed in his confessions along these very lines, he asked the question, which sailor is more thrilled with reaching land? The The sailor who journeys across mellow seas for many days and reaches home Or the sailor who, though he enters the harbor on a nice, beautiful day, endured out at sea some great storm and gave up hope that he'd ever live to see land? Which one enjoys seeing the land more? Which commander, asks Augustine, exalts the more in victory? He who defeated a weak enemy? No, writes Augustine, the more peril there was in the battle, the more joy there is in the triumph. Who more appreciates life, the man who has perfect health or the man who has just seen a life-threatening fever break? And then we ask with Jesus, which sinner loves the Father more? The one who senses no need for forgiveness or the one who has come to see his or her utter depravity? Now there might be at this point for a number of us the objection that rises within and says, where does that leave me? Let me stop and go back just a step. There are those within our assembly and forgive God the glory for it. Some of you have walked in very deep patterns of sin for a long time in your past and in your experience. And praise God for the light that has shined and brought you out of those depths. There is a love in your heart that is there that cannot be matched in some respects. But there are many of us here who say, you know, I haven't had that experience. I grew up in a Christian home. I came to saving faith at a fairly young age in life, and I never fell into any deep patterns of wickedness and sin. Where does this leave me? I can't love God very much because I haven't been forgiven very much, might be the tempting thought. Well, let me say in response to that, I'd like to take a few moments and to address that very issue because I think we have our finger on the root here. Of devotion to God. The problem is really not a matter of experience. The problem is a matter of perception. The problem is not the amount of sin that we have committed, but our awareness of its horror. There is theological truth that needs to be joined to this passage of Scripture. This passage doesn't stand on its own. It comes in the whole context of the biblical truth and that truth is this we were dead in transgressions and sins every last one of us and the only way that we can be brought out of sin and be forgiven is by Jesus Christ to lay down his life and to die in our place Jesus didn't die for the really wicked sinners for the rest of them if it hadn't been for them he could have just maybe suffered a few cuts and bruises Jesus gave his life for every sinner. And had, that been, and had you been the only sinner on earth, I believe that he would have had to die for your salvation. No matter how early you came to Christ, no matter, how, matter much, how much sin you've avoided in your life, Jesus had to die. But let's press a step beyond that. It was an infinite debt that He paid for every one of us, no matter when we came to saving faith and no matter what we've done. But we need, as those who have come to faith at a young age, and have not seen perhaps some of the horrors of sin as others have, we need to develop and to nurture and to meditate on these matters that our love for God may deepen. In fact, those who have been brought out of great depths of sin also need to continue to meditate on that truth. And where do they tend to meditate? They tend to never forget how sinful they were and therefore to never forget how great God is. Well, those of you who are saved at a young age need to do the very same thing, but to think of it not so much experientially as theologically. I wrote some of these ideas down in meditations in my later 20s. And I never heard anybody say them before. Not to say that was some novel idea. On my part, in fact, it wasn't at all. The problem was I'm living in in the wrong culture to say those things. I wrote down the idea that it seemed that there had to be a continuing knowledge of the depths of our sin in order for us to really know the love of God. How thrilled I was in recent days to find a short biography by John Piper on the life of Charles Simeon. Some of you have perhaps read that section, and to hear there's somebody saying that. Now, Charles Simeon lived a long time ago, which is why he said these things. We just don't say these things in our culture. But in this book by Piper, he brings out these ideas, and I was so thankful to find these. I heard it first on a tape in a car, and I remember right where I was when I heard that tape. And said, that's it. That's the root of love and devotion. I quote, he says, we should, writes Piper, we should get rid once and for all. Let me start back. Charles Simeon counters the notion that, quote, we should get rid once and for all of feelings of vileness and unworthiness as soon as we can. He writes that for Simeon, adoration only grew in the freshly plowed soil of humiliation for sin. In other words, Simeon labored all his life to meditate on two things. And he said it this way, One, my own vileness. And two, the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. And I have always thought, he writes, that they should be viewed together. Did you hear that? Nobody says that anymore. My own vileness and the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ, both viewed together. As his friends explained, Simeon spent time contemplating the depths of his sin. That is, he would meditate on the depths of his sin. Now, there's a sick mind, huh? He would meditate on the horrors of his own sin. And then he would find his meditations on the grace of God, gloriously sweet. In other words, he purposely nurtured a broken and contrite heart by contemplating his vile unworthiness. And it was then that he began to realize that he had been gloriously forgiven. Is he right or is he just sick? Is it wrong for us to contemplate and to meditate on our vileness? I claim absolutely no inspiration on my own part. The meditations that I wrote down some years before simply came out of passages of Scripture I was studying. It's what the Bible teaches. It's just that nobody wants to talk about it. But did the Apostle Paul talk about it? 1 Timothy 1 and verse 15, here is a trustworthy saying and deserves full acceptance. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I used to be one. He says, Of whom I am the worst, the chief. Now, there is a sense in which, yes, we are delivered from our sin and we rejoice in that fact, but we will find in Scripture that this is, in fact, a biblical emphasis that we are never to simply forget about our depravity. We are to know it and to know it well. And it is in the sense of understanding that depravity that we have the capacity to understand the grace and the glory of Christ. Our focus should be certainly on the mercy and the love of God, not on our sin. We can turn this into a self-loathing idea. That is wrong, but so is an emphasis on self-esteem. I don't need to esteem myself. I need to esteem Jesus Christ. I need to esteem God, and as I esteem Him As He reaches down to me in my utter depravity and absolute sinfulness, it is then that I can begin to love Him. Do you see how our culture works so steadily against that idea? We are to think well of ourselves, to think good of ourselves, to esteem ourselves, to realize, don't you Christian, that you're forgiven, your guilt is false guilt. Don't think of guilt. Think only of salvation. Think only of forgiveness. Think only of what Jesus did. In fact, has it not been in, years, in these recent years that the whole reason of why Jesus died itself has become twisted to be that He died and gave Himself for us because we were so worthy? So great were we that we merited the cost of the Son. With that kind of thinking, Christians don't love God. They love themselves. But we need to come to see, and I, I tell you this, I believe that it is the root of devotion. I believe Simeon was right. I thank Piper for bringing him to contemporary eyes in this matter. They're right. The source of our love and devotion for Christ is Christ but it is Christ in the light of our depravity and sinfulness. If we don't see ourselves as utterly lost and hopeless without Him, then we really aren't going to love God very much. I realize this can be taken in a wrong direction and can turn into goofiness. But I also believe that it is essential for us to see who we are so that we can truly see who Jesus is. Do you want to love him more? Do you want a deeper, fuller devotion to God? Then put down deep roots into understanding your own humiliation before him, so that you can see the glories of Christ. Let's bow for prayer. Lord, I pray that in this endeavor we would not go off into the direction of being self-oriented. Simply feeling bad about how bad we are. But I pray, dear God, that you would help us as a church to nurture a deeper and fuller devotion by realizing the depths of our sin and the glories of our salvation bring us to this point of devotion. And to realize it's not merely a matter of the experiences that we've had, but it is a matter of perception. To realize that we were infinitely lost. And that it took an infinite price to pay for our salvation. I pray for your people that we would understand this and grow in light of it and develop in our love for you. That this would be a church where people love you with great passion and with depth of insight and that our love for you would be real. I pray, God, for any here who may see themselves as, a, as pursuing Jesus as an addition to their own good works. That you will bring them alive by helping them to see how dead they are. That you will help such people, if there would be any among us, to understand that they are utterly lost without Christ. Bring them to that light, I pray with all of my heart, that they might enter the joy of knowing you and sins forgiven. Guide us on this journey, that your name might be hallowed, and that we might know the joy that you intend for us. The abundant life that comes through Christ. We will thank you in his name. Amen.